Hey there, this is Lori Ference of Leaders Call to Adventure, the show for those that take the road less traveled. Welcome. In this episode, I catch up with Lisa Bowles of The Soul Map. The Soul Map is a boutique entrepreneurial coaching and consulting firm based in Ontario, Canada, that utilizes astrology to help soul-centered entrepreneurs with niching, platform creation, business building, and achieving success. Back in 2010, I had my soul mapped with Lisa, and it was a distinctly mind-blowing experience. The things that I took away from that experience were really foundational to the creation of Leaders Call to Adventure a year later. I had the pleasure of meeting Lisa and her husband Randy uh, that year and was really struck by the nature of their relationship, how loving it was, how caring, full of compassion, yet playful and joyful. Um, You could tell they really had each other's backs and you couldn't miss Randy's presence in the work. Um, In Lisa's live calls, she'd often have uh, Randy standing by and supporting her through all the technical details and he was known as Carlton, the doorman. Uh, Just a real joy, uh, blessing to know Randy. And it was quite a shock to everybody in her community back in 2014 when um, they discovered he had cancer and after a few short months passed away. Despite a measurable loss, Lisa's guiding light still burns brightly. Her work has become deeper and more powerful, and she's learned in an unshakable way that everything does, in fact, happen for a reason. So here's Lisa answering a question about all the changes that have occurred in her life since Randy's passing. Yeah, lots of change. Lots and lots of very big change. Um... I haven't, well, I have been public about it, um, but not um, profusely so. My my darling, darling, darling husband and um, spiritual partner and business partner and best, best, best friend, um, who is integral to the work. I mean, the work exists because it was ours. I may be the face and the voice, but... Um, he was as much a part of it as I. Um, he was diagnosed um, to our great dismay and surprise uh, two and a half years ago with um, metastatic terminal cancer. And, uh, you know, it was asymptomatic. There was no signs of illness, n- nothing, you know. Uh. So it was, it was a shock. And um, it was inoperable. We saw a number of people about it. Um, treatment recommended was palliative only, uh, as far as traditional medicine is concerned. And we did everything we knew to do. And uh, after a lot of research, in a kind of combined treatment plan, and um, alternative and complementary. And, and uh, it was just his time. Um, it's a difficult thing to watch your beloved fade. 
it's a very difficult thing. It's a difficult thing to watch them watch themselves think. Um, so his, his passing, his dying, was as difficult as living without him in many respects. Um, he's been gone since, um, it's been a little over two years. Um, his anniversary, the anniversary of his passing is just a few weeks ago. And um, it's affected me in ways that are profound and still, you know, largely inarticulate. Um, it's a work, it's, it's a process. And I'm, the work has deepened um, in part because um, it's one of the ways I connect with him. And I'm very, um, how do I say this? Um, the spirit of him and all that he put into it, all that he contributed, all that he named, all that he um, may, helped make possible is alive every time I do the work. So um, in, in a way that um, surprised the hell out of me, I have to say, my work became even more sacred ground. And a respite. Um, you know, losing him is probably one of, well, it is. It just is. It's the most excruciating thing I've ever, ever known. And still is to some degree. But even in the midst of um, the terribleness of the pain initially, work was um, respite and nourishment. It was a place where the pain um, was not eliminated, but um, softened and became a place of deep listening for me in my own process and for the folks that I was working with. Um, and, and honestly, I, I, you know, shortly after he passed away, I, I thought I was going to be incapable and the opposite was true, really. The opposite was true. Um, the work has grown, the work has deepened, and my ability to serve has increased and grown deeper. I, I don't, I haven't really explored that very much or talked about it very much because I'm, I'm not sure it's finished. I, I, so that's part of the, the, the I just, the, the inability to articulate it. But what I have been able to watch, um, in part because of the effect on um, the space I can hold and the work I can do with clients and what they, what I am able to witness because they give me a window into their experience, is that it's more effective, deeper, and um, more impactful. And, uh, you know, I don't know this for sure. I don't think anybody ever could, but um, I have a suspicion that I'm not alone doing the work and that his hands, his hands in there. So, um, in a way he just couldn't have been before. Um, and that gives me a lot of comfort and, you know, his contribution's still very much alive. So, um, as far as, um, my living goes, you know, the first, year to 18 months, you know, other than the work, which actually nourished me, it gave me an anchor. It was a, you know, an hour at a time, 90 minutes at a time. It was, it was kind of a, 
nourishing respite. It was sacred ground. It was a place of prayer. You know, my work is my prayer. And when I'm able to inhabit that as fully as I can, what happens is a blessing. The business, the work is a blessing. Um, but beyond that, I was really private. I kind of went into solitude um, so I could be with the experience I was having as fully as possible. And I just found that otherwise, um, energetically, I just, I just didn't have energy for much else. And, uh, you know, um, that's, that probably counts for about 18 months. Recently, I've sold our little cottage home on Lake Huron. It sadly this year it became clear it wasn't home anymore. And, um, have moved to a, a, a really lovely renovated one bedroom in Toronto where I am starting a new chapter. And, um, I don't know where all this will take me, but, um, I, I have a feeling I'm, you know, despite the fact that I miss his physical presence in ways I, I don't have words for. I'm not alone. I have a feeling that part of the reason why the work has been affected as it has is um, because we are, it has made it possible for me to be more deeply with um, tumult and um, pain and loss, grief, um, and things of life that are beyond our control, but must be lived fully, met fully. Um, and, you know, these times we're living in require that more than ever. You know, the ability to stay present, to be here, all here, um, even when it hurts really, really bad, and you're confused and you feel untethered. How do you find solid ground? Where, where does that come from? And I've learned that the, the answer really is what they say it is. It's inside. Um, and a little bit beyond the pain. It's actually through inside and beyond the pain. So um, I have a feeling that's why the work has become better in the way that it has. Um, but it hasn't been without trial. Um, you know better than most that one of, of our deepest beliefs and convictions is that everything happens for a reason. And that's a bitch of a thing to live when <laughs> the man yeah. you love more than life itself is dying or is gone. Um, knowing that everything that, it, that, that was purposeful was, um, boy, talk about a crisis of faith. And... Um, and at the same time, it was a call to dig deeper for the reality and the ground of that. Um, and I'm still convinced. I am still convinced. Uh, it's not a mental construct. It's, it's a reality. Um, I don't always like <laughs> the way it works out. As many of us don't right now as we look at, you know, what's going on in the world around us here at home or abroad. But, um, you know, it is trials like that that call us more deeply into the truth of what our life's about. So that it's not just construct, it is 
It's in our bones. We're not just thinking it, we're living it. That makes sense. And so, you know, I, I, one of the biggest problems for me, other than the whole, you know, everything happens for a reason, oh, you gotta be kidding me, is when, as most of us, I'm assuming most of us, most people I've talked to, you know, one of the, I had with him everything I'd ever wanted, more than I'd dreamed of, truly, in the experience of life. I had work I felt deeply satisfied by and fulfilled by and proud of. I had it with him. I, I, we had our life together. I mean, and when he died, um, I... I was like, I, I don't know what to want now. I had it. You want me to want, I had what I wanted. You want me to want something else now? And what I learned from that, even in purposeful work, is that desire is both necessary, because it really is, but it's deeper than we understand. And what this taught me is how to fall deeply enough inside to touch it mm. and how to reawaken it when it's, you know, gone out, when the fire's gone. Um, and that many of our goals, many of our aims, many of our plans are tethered to an I want and when when something like this happens and, and breaks that or interrupts it, disrupts it really profoundly, um, it's hard to know how to keep going or what to direct your life to or how. Um, I've talked to a number of people who have had similar kinds of experiences, you know, great loss particularly, when wanting is gone it's it's um empty mm. um that um finding a way to access desire again um takes on a magnitude that is um it's difficult to speak about and changes you um I can't make plans. I can't set goals in the same way that I used to anymore. Um, in part because I know things are transient. <laughs> Boy, talk about a lesson in, you know, um, allowing things to just move and go. Urgh. And um, an extraordinary period of... Um, really becoming familiar with where desire really comes from for me. And I think possibly for most of us, if not all of us, that it's, it's not about what we want here. And it's not about the more common everyday dreams. It's about something much, much deeper and that we don't always have easy access to. And sometimes something like this is what cracks it open. That makes sense. It does, but I'm, I'm wondering, where are you at in that? Was it a certain period you said that the work, mm -hmm. that you were able to show up and do the work, 
very soon after and that you weren't really, you weren't sure if that would happen. Right? I wasn't. Yeah. I really so, wasn't. So the question is, did the desire lead you to starting the work again? Or did that come later? Oh, it came much later. I, um, I didn't have, doing the work as he was dying and after he passed, there wasn't a whole lot of desire beyond the very, I would say, moderate appreciation for the fact that it gave me a connection to sacred space, to sacred mm. ground. And so I don't, I, I wouldn't, because it is such a mild form, it was more, oh, thank you. And then to witness the work being good, not just good, but deeper. Uh, I was grateful, but I can't tell you that it was desire. Mm -hmm. It was more, I was very grateful that, that that proved to be true and that it gave me some things I, I probably wouldn't have had access to otherwise. And I needed them. Um, you know, I found that I needed the work. Not, not because it took my mind off things, but because it connected me with what I needed to sustain myself. And so I could witness that despite the agony and, and all that came with it, there was a place that was solid in my life. And that wasn't broken. And so that was a place to kind of build on. It took me a while to get that, though. I, I Mostly I was just like, wow, okay, that was unexpected. Um, desire itself, because, you know, the first six months, eight months, I, well, honestly, I was in shock. Yeah. It really takes a long time for your mind to get, and, and I was, he was in my arms when he took his last breath. I mean, I watched him die. But my mind, uh, it, it, you know, the idea that he was actually gone, it took a long time to really land. So there's a period of disbelief and shock. And when that started to wear off, that's when this abs complete and utter absence of desire really made itself known. And, um, you know, I, I was, honestly, I was, uh, when I wasn't working, when I wasn't connected, I was despairing. I don't, like, how do you go on when you don't want to? Yeah. How do you go on when you had everything you ever wanted? How, how, how do you goal set? How do you, how do you create? Uh, uh, the, um, and so my prayer then became, um, help me touch desire. I don't even know where this comes from. I know that I don't want the common things. For, so for example, I, you know, d d you know, I want relationship with a great guy. Well, I had that and I doubt I'm ever going to have that again. That way? No way. Do I want it? I have no idea. Not right now. Mm -hmm. Do I want, so uh, the common goals and aims, even in professional life, I, I didn't, I didn't know where to point myself. So I was a little like a compass, just spinning. The center holds, but it was just. And then one of my clients, an extraordinary artist by the name of Cara Brown, her um, business is called Life in Full Color. Mm 
Um, she posted a blog and it told the story of her process painting one of her, she's a watercolor artist, um, painting this one piece. And um, I started sobbing looking at it. She has the most extraordinary capacity for painting light and life. Mm. She, she captures the spirit of it. And her paintings are luminous. And in this particular case, um, and it's called Firelight, uh, I started sobbing because it was the first time I felt desire again. And it flooded me. And I began to realize that what I, what I was beginning to hunger for again is a return of, of a certain kind of experiential feeling. Um, I, I wanted luminosity again. I wanted light. Um, not an absence of pain, but light and luminosity in concert with pain and the gifts and wisdom it can offer. Um, and the tears were, because I often do this and it took me a long time to understand, I sob when I come home to some sort of recognition that hasn't quite found its way into words or cognitive understanding. I just start, I just break into sobs because something in me recognizes I'm touching home. And that's been an orient, an orienter for me. And it, what was difficult about this is I've been sobbing for months at that point because, you know. Yeah. And um, there was grief mixed in with it. Um, and it was at that point I realized that desire, full desire, access to the deep, deep kind of desire that is more soulful than mental and construct and common day um, is mixed in with sorrow because mm -hmm. in order to be really in touch, at least this is what it was for me, and I've talked to a few other people who recognize it as well, to be fully in touch with that degree of desire, you also have to be in touch with the grief that it's not already here or that few of us have access to that unrestrained experience. So for the first time, I realized that to some degree I'd been, and I hadn't known it. I don't, I don't think many of us do that there's a certain degree of buffering of the fullness of desire because it comes with these other emotions. And, um, you know, desire isn't all light. It's mixed in with shadow and dark. And, um, you gotta let that in too. And at that point, I didn't have any, barriers or restraints against it it was I was undefended against it and so it just whoosh came uh, and it's changed my relationship my understanding of desire and I've been I've been following it ever since attuning to it ever since it means that I have to welcome the sadness that comes in, with the recognition that you know not everybody has this. I have to let this go to have, you know. So it's, it's the whole, it really is the whole opening to the whole of it, being receptive to the whole of it so that I can know f as fully and completely as possible what it is my life actually wants mm. and is willing to accept and make space for and meet to be either a, a manifester of that or a champion and ambassador of it. And um, I suspect that's changed things, too. It's still in progress. 
I actually bought the painting so that I can be in touch with that remembrance. And it's it's a, a talisman for me now. Um, and and that's something I don't know that I would have known if this hadn't happened. You know, I I'd trade it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I wouldn't. So. Does that answer the question? It answers the question. It brings up so many more. Uh, yeah. Right? When we think of desire, even it's like, what does that mean? Right? Um, yep. Is it a feeling state? Is it driving you to action? Is it, is it, is it pulling you forward towards something? Yep. All and, of those things. And turning you away from something. Yeah. It does, it does all, a whole bunch of things. Is it a feeling state? Um, it sure has been for me. But it's more than that. When, when I find myself really, really connected and allowing the range of what, it, what the experience that's in it, um, it's, it's an orienter for me. I, I, it's like hot and cold. You know, that game, hot, you're getting hotter, you're getting colder. Um, it directs me. I can tell when I'm going off course and mm -hmm. I can correct faster, but I have to be honest about the coolness that's coming in. I have to be really, and I have to watch my preferences. I have to watch my assumptions. I have to, I really have to be honest. And sometimes that's hard. Sometimes that's really hard, especially when there's a piece of it you don't want to be true or a piece of it that hurts or a piece of it that challenges, you know, one of those things. So he, here's an example. I bought the painting. It was shipped to me. This is how I knew I had to sell my cottage. The okay. painting arrived. I opened it up. And all of a sudden, I knew the walls of that place were not where that was supposed to be at home. And I was like, oh, shit. I had just moved back from a winter rental. So I was maybe six weeks into settling in. And all I could think of is, so I have to let go of my home too? Okay. And that was when I, I really had to let myself honestly admit that it didn't feel like home anymore. I wanted it to. I didn't want more change or tumult in my life. But being in honest relationship with what I was becoming more aware of as a broader thing than I'd known called desire, um, it, it meant more letting go. And I, I, had, I, I really had to let myself tell the truth about it. And once I did, I, I was ready faster than I could actually get out. <laughs> um, <laughs> So the, the period of time when it was upsetting was, um, lasted less time than I thought it would. So, so some of the, a lot of this is surprising, but uh, you know, between paying attention to the need for solitude and retreat, which I, I have to say, you know, it was, I knew it was appropriate and there were times when Man, it was just so hard to be with grief and nothing. Absolutely. Nothing else. Yeah. Yeah. But I knew I had to. <clears throat> and then this changing relationship with what the nature of desire and want. 
I have a better sense of orientation and compass, internal compass, than I've ever had in my life. Ever. Even with him. Even wow. with him. Uh, you know, my life with him prepared me. There are so much of the work that we did as a couple and as spiritual partners that laid the foundations for this. I, I don't think I would have been ready or capable of being alone with my grief. If I, if, we, if I hadn't loved him and if we hadn't loved each other as deeply as we did in all the ways that we did, but... Um, is there trust? Oh. Is that? Yeah. And, and, and trust in ways that isn't about having long-term plans. You know, sometimes, especially when you're in deep grief, and everything that was foundational to your life, you know, just crumples. <laughs> um, number one, you find out what doesn't, what stays, what's solid, what never leaves, what is unassailable, you know, in you and to you. And two, you find out what the work you've done has done for you to prepare you. Um, We were together close to 16 years, and you know, I knew we were doing work while we were married. And there were days when I was like, Rrr. it's not all, you know, rainbows and roses. And um, it prepared me to meet grief and stand. Um, and it showed me that it's part of it, you know. Boy, oh boy, there's no, well, I, I can't say this. Spiritual bypass is really, pardon my French, fucking hard when you're in deep grief. I can't even imagine the energy it would take to turn away from it. I just, I cannot imagine how much it would take to push that down. Like, I really can't imagine. And it's been a wise teacher, an extraordinarily, and still is a wise, wise teacher. In terms of trust, what I've learned is that I don't need to know more than what I know I need right now. Because nothing else, you can't, you can't hold on to anything else. I can't hold on to anything else. You know, the circumstances will shift and, you know, think about what's happened recently in the United States. Things change. And so one of the things I'm beginning to realize and, and just starting to be able to articulate is, our purpose shifts its focus and its aim when the needs of the world change. Um, it may take many of the same forms, but how you do it, why you do it, who you do it with or for, what you say about it, and, and the actions your life needs you to take could change because the needs of the world have shifted. And... Um, That means that you have to be willing to dance with, I don't know. You have to. In, in a way that allows that kind of fluidity. So you can move. So you can meet. So you can rise. Even if it means that rising takes a while. Because it has for me. Um, like I said at the beginning, you know, I haven't been public about this much. Because much of what I was living was sacred ground to me. It was, it was private. It was for him and it was for me and for, for what we were and it was for what was starting to germinate in me. And, um, 
you know, there's a kind of protectiveness that felt appropriate to me. And now it just feels like it's time to talk and to be more transparent, I guess, about it. It, it feels like it's time that it isn't just for me, but for us all. That makes sense. Absolutely makes sense. Because so often we, we don't know how to talk about grief. We don't know how to support people in their grief. No. Mostly because we don't want to feel it. I sure as hell didn't. <laughs> um, and, and because we, we live in a real, a grief, grief averse culture. We live yeah. in a death averse culture. Um, because it is, we know innately and instinctively that it's, it's gonna hurt like a son of a bitch. Yeah. And we're not sure we're equal to it. And so we turn away and it's in turning away that we become unequal to it. But it is turning into it that you find out you're not just equal, you're its partner and it's yours. And it has great things to offer. It just is going to suck for a while. But the degree to which it sucks is the degree to which love is alive. Mm. And, you know, I'll take that. I'll take that. I just want to comment. I mean, in our culture, there's just so much <clears throat> for us to turn to, towards. There's so much to take us out of ourselves. And mm. addiction is rampant in every form. Yeah. Um, because we're trying to avoid grief, sorrow. Well, in our defense, I'm just going to say this. We haven't been prepared. We haven't taught ourselves how to be with grief. So the word avoidance is a bit of a, for me, because... If you do, if you have lived most of your life thinking you are incapable of meeting it and surviving, what alternative do you have? Until you find yourself in a, in a safe space with community, with people, or a person who can help you discover that you are equal to it, that you can meet it, that it is not bigger than you, it is for you. And that sounds like complete BS until you're there. Um, it is in meaning life's trials that we find out that they are not capable of being more than we are. And that there's a lot more to us than we think mm. or are afraid of. You know, there were days when I thought the pain would eat me alive. There were days when I went to bed praying I'd stop breathing in my sleep so I didn't have to get up in the morning and it's only by having walked through that without trying to shut it off pretend it wasn't happening lie about it um, that I discovered that pain isn't greater than I am and that I am more than this and that I live on does that make sense? Uh, yeah, it makes sense. Uh, 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 the whole avoidance thing, like, don't get me wrong, there are a lot of avoidant people, and it's because we're only now learning how to turn towards. And for, as far as I can tell, the work is just beginning. So, okay, I, I want to focus on that. I mean, 
do people have to go through something that totally dismantles everything in their life and everything they've built and they've had everything they want and it's gone in order to to get to the process of being able to turn in to themselves and be with that sorrow, whatever it is for them. How how to go there? Life will take you. I mean, seriously, life will take you. If that's something that you need, life will take you. Um, holding, maybe not at the time, because even knowing I teach this, I live this, and at the time, talk to the hand, baby. Um, but holding that you are being benevolently ushered into a benevolent process mm. at some point, it's like that whole, you know, everything happens for a reason. Oh, fuck off. I knew it was true. Didn't want it to be true. And it is the anchor of my life. It was the anchor of our life. I know it's true. And finding my way back to that was part of the point. So I could tell I wasn't, it wasn't just a nice thought. I know this. It's not something I think. It's something I've lived and live still. You can, it, like that will never leave me. It's in my DNA. It's in my marrow of my bones now. I don't doubt it. Well, there are days, there are moments. I think every, but my, it's hold of me is, yeah, it's, it's permanent. It's permanent. Now, to go to your point, you know, do we need this? Every spiritual tradition around the world talks about the need for this. I mean, if you look at some of the um, religious traditions, you know, archetypally or in, in terms of gods and goddesses, or spirits, you know, there are, are always spirits of destruction and death, uh, of periods of time when everything must fall, because something more or something beyond, it's time for. I mean, we as human beings have known this forever. So it's not new. And it's not a surprise. We just don't have not known how to meet it very well. We've not known, and more often than not, would really rather that pain wasn't our companion, but it is. And when you are a leader, as many of us, and in particular in your circles, know themselves to be, you know, we want the adventure, but we don't want the pain. You can't adventure and lead unless you make pain your partner. You just can't. Because then you're, you're living a conditional half-life. And life involves the whole of it. You can't know that you can be the leader you're called to be when shit hits the fan. Unless when shit hits the fan, you find a way to lead yourself. And once you've learned that you can do that, um, you can become the leader you're supposed to. You can touch and bring the purpose alive in your heart and soul with you. Um, th that I know now, they're not words for me. They're just not words for me. I, I regret 
that I had to lose my love to know it, but I now know it. It's just what's true. That's, you know, we look around with, with what's happening. Um, it's calling out for people who are willing to lead through pain. You know, shit hit the fan, and it's going to continue to hit the fan. And this is the adventure. And we have great, we have extraordinary opportunity. We're just not going to get out of the more unpleasant aspects of it to live it well. But live it well is the greatest option. And I, I feel more prepared. I feel more prepared. It's not that there isn't fun. It's not that there isn't joy. It's not that there isn't happiness. Um, but you have to take it all. Because that's the only way you know. See, that's the other thing about desire. I now know what I'm willing to say goodbye to, to have the, lo the love and life that I want for myself and for others. I now know that I can bear sacrifice. That I'm willing to sacrifice. And that I can stand it. I now know. How? How do you get there? How do you get from, but I really, really want this? It's, um, it's allowing that you can't have it. Not that way. And that not being, and believe me, I don't say that lightly. Because you heard me. There were nights I went to bed praying I would stop breathing in my sleep. I, that's how wretchedly painful it, it has been. I don't want to keep living. Why would I want that when I can go over here? He's there. You're there. The God of my heart. You're there. He's there. I can just, you know, why, why? Like, because it's not just about what you want here. There's something deeper. And it, it all does happen for a reason. See, what I've learned is that we take that and we, we turn it just a little to mean, that means I can have anything I want. It's like going to, you know, the department store two weeks before Christmas is sitting on Santa Claus's lap. That's not what this is. And if we enter into the work with that, that little enduring fantasy in our head, then spiritual process or personal evolution work becomes about making life be what this wants and not about what life needs to be and us as its agent or ambassador or manifester. And trusting that that will bring us a kind of fulfillment we can't even plan or imagine. Um, you know, I didn't want this, but I'll tell you, that um, I didn't think I could want again. And I can. I have. I am. I, I don't know what's in store. But if life brought me him in that life, you know, I met Randy. I, sh I, sh I went to a book study club. He was the second person I met. I looked into his eyes as I shook his hand, and I instantly knew. It was like electrifying. And then my mind went nuts because it seemed crazy. And about 
15 minutes later, I learned that he was married to a woman he loved very much. Um, his second wife, as a matter of fact, and he had four kids. And I was like, okay, here we go again with the unavailable men thing. I got to go. This is crazy. And 30 days later, 30 days later, she died suddenly and tragically of a brain aneurysm. So our connection and our courtship, we were married a year and a half later, happened, took place while he was in deep grief. And I knew then, not as deeply as I know now, that that happened for a reason. That the time, like synchronicity, like, so if I, if I knew then, and he could live that courageously then, then I have to, I have to follow his example. That wasn't an accident. You know, the book ending of our relationship with his loss of her and my loss of him, there's something important to pay attention to there. The living fully despite loss and grief and the untenable nature of what comes and goes, it's part of this and I cannot ignore that. I can't pretend. I can't, you know, fairy tale beginning and not see the same here with his, his death. It doesn't have the same romantic glow it did then. Because this doesn't feel very romantic. Um, you know, it's all, it's not dewy and champagne-y and, but it's just as real. And it grounds me. Yeah, I don't feel like I have to turn away from stuff. It hurts. You know, watching Standing Rock, it hurts. And, Watching what's happening in the United States in terms of Trump gathering folks. And if you're a Trump fan, sorry. <laughs> um, it's, it hurts. And it has me dig deeper and know that there's ground to touch. And I, I don't know I would have been able to make that this way a few years ago. I don't know. I really don't. Purpose. You know, a number of years ago, one of the guys who was featured in The Secret. Mm. Yeah. Tragedy occurred at one of his, his retreats. I'm not sure I could call it a retreat. In large part because he believed he had control over processes that are not within our control. And a lot of us enter into leadership-oriented personal evolution or spiritual work or purpose work with this notion in the back of our heads, subtle and not quite revealed, that we have more control than we think we, than, mm. than we actually do. And coming face-to-face -face with the fact that we don't, because this has made it very clear to me, I'm not nearly as in control as I'd like to be. I'm not as frightened of that as I once was. Even though it has meant my beloved's death. Because the unknown has met me and lifted me up. 
and I don't know I would have believed this way that there was something that kind of real and trustworthy even though I can't know it very well I know it enough because it's met me and it meets me every day I know it enough and the only way to know it better is to not try and control things mm. there's things that you have to you, you know you have to show up you have to do the work you have to deliver when you say you're going to deliver or if you if you somehow can't to renegotiate and be straight up about but there are aspects of the process that are outside of our control because they're so big and they they involve so much beyond our our reckoning we can't and do them justice so that question you asked earlier about trust uh, yeah 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 and, and surrender I, and so surrender and i believe that leadership requires that we dance with that that we admit we're dancing with that you know i think part of the reason why trump and others like him are so popular is because people want to feel in control and they're so upset and angry and dis, you know just disenfranchised that they want to pound things back to the way they were so they can feel safe and comfortable and you know, and, and it's not, I understand the feeling, but you can't make life be what it is, what you want it to be. You have to respond to life. You just do, you have to respond to life and hear its voice tell you how through you it's meant to be lived. How do you do that moment by moment? People will say, like, how do I, how do I allow that to happen? No, my mind's not going in, getting in the way. My ego's not leading it. How do you live that? Not just in a space where you're sitting down and you're meditating and, okay, I've got it. I'm, you know, clear. I feel it. But moment to moment, how do you live that? You make moment to moment a practice. You, you, my prayer, our prayer, Randy's in my prayer. So that's why when I say my work is my prayer, I mean it. It is my living, active, moment-to-moment -moment prayer. And I'm not good at it every moment. You can't be, I, like, we can't be, but I come back to it. So when I watch my, it's, it's, there, there was, um, one of Randy's most beloved teachers, uh, was Dr. Richard Hawkins. He wrote Power Versus Force and a variety of other books. And we attended a lecture that he gave, and the, the, the name of the lecture was Living Your Life Like a Prayer. And it sang to my heart. Like, I just like, what is that? And one of the things that he said during the lecture is that instead of meditating for 15 minutes, what you want to do is live your life in a way that, be, that helps it become more and more a, an, an active meditation moment to moment. So that you don't have to go sit someplace, you're actively living the meditation. Which means, you know, to watch the thoughts come and let them go and, and go for something deeper. Well, I'm here to tell you, grief has made more of my day-to-day -day moments an act, the act of listening to what's here and not following it. Because the thoughts wanted me to die. And I, I had to go deeper to find solid ground. Um, was there grace in that too? In oh, yes. But if you'd asked me that question five, six months in, I'd have said no. 
um, it was just, it was just too exquisitely painful. And it's really hard work. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why grief is so tiring because you are, the invitation in it, in it is to be actively meditating all day, all day, every day. So when you ask me, how do you do that? Practice cultivating presence and awareness, mm. cultivating presence and awareness. Um, and, and while knowing that that is the work of a lifetime, you're going to get better at it day to day, week to week, month to month, and year to year. But to recognize it is, um, uh, it is a, a commitment you make like you would commit to a marriage. And just frankly, we're not really great at commitments that are that enduring and demanding. You know, you can leave a marriage and you can leave meditation. What I love about what the, I couldn't leave grief because it wouldn't leave me. And so one of the, you say grace, is, is when life brings these things to you, if you let your, give yourself to them, which sounds nuts, but if you do, it will take you where you need to go. Because my, my question is, in those moments where you went to sleep and you were mm. hoping that you didn't wake up, what was your experience the next day? Were there things that helped you to trust? My work. Because I, you know, if I went two or three days, like over a weekend, I wouldn't work. By Monday or Tuesday, I was like, I, I got to help somebody. <laughs> I, I have to put myself in that space. Um, my kids. Um, so I mentioned that Randy's previous wife died suddenly of a brain aneurysm. They had two daughters and those two daughters are, have grown into beautiful young women. They're both married to wonderful men. As far as I'm concerned, they're as much mine as they were their moms. And their mom died. 17 years ago, 16 years ago, and now their dad's gone, and they didn't need to lose another parent. So I didn't want that for them. So even though I wanted life to end for me, I didn't want that for them. That helped. Um, it gave me cause to find a way to live with and be with. Um, I, I've been really good most of my life fighting quote unquote negative emotion. Mm. You know, my, I would say the first 10 years of my own journey and spiritual process was really about, you know, the promise you'll get to bliss and then you won't feel shitty anymore. <laughs> it's like, don't we all get, you know, we find yeah. out one day that we've been doing it because we, you know, been playing games with ourselves. It's, I will never feel crappy again. Oh, that's not really true. Shit. Um, I gave up the fight. Um, I, I didn't live in perpetual surrender. I, I don't know that I'll ever live there, but I became, because it was too big to fight. And progressively, I learned that it wasn't bigger than me. Um, so day to day, the other thing that I did for myself, I mentioned that little beagle. Yeah. I needed contact. I needed physical contact with a living, breathing, affectionate creature. She gave me that. Um, 
she kept me in my body. She kept me in life. And, um, you know, she needs a lot of exercise. And I need to care for her. So she got me up. She got me moving. She kept me, you know, from sitting still and just sitting in the dark. You know, to be in the dark, you have to be willing to be in the dark in the light. Yes. You just yeah. have to. Yeah. And I knew I needed her. So um, having a little dog helped. Um, I stayed in touch with a, a handful of people who were willing to just hear me when I needed to be heard and be with me when there was nothing to say. And that helped. And, and, and the last thing was I just had to trust myself. I had to trust myself. Practicing presence, cultivating presence, um, that's the, that's the only answer, really. That's the place to lead and create from. It's the place you can hear purpose, know what it is, follow it, hot and cold. Um, because presence makes it possible for you to be with whatever you feel. And notice mm. there's a difference between feeling and thinking or judging yourself for feeling. And that underneath the feeling, there's something alive and informative um, and worth trusting. And that's where leadership really comes from. That's where leadership really comes from. My knowledge of leadership continues to evolve. I, I mean, I don't know. There, uh, talk to me again five years from now. I'm sure we're going to have more to talk about. Um, I think a lot of us are going through difficult stretches like this because we're preparing ourselves to lead in difficult times. And this is where, this is where the kinds of legacies that build nations or restore nations and create culture or revive culture, this, this is where it happens. And it's about more than, you know, whether you have a nice house. It can answer that question too, but it's about a lot more than that. And I don't know about you, but that's the kind of life I want to live. It's the kind of life I wanted to live with him and was. It's just bigger now. So. It feels to me the buzzword of attachment and surrender, attachment, trust. Mm -hmm. This is the path. Mm -hmm. This is to, to really living that, not in a mental space, but in a real yeah. felt lived, experienced space. Um, I have a, a similar relationship with the word attachment that I do with the word avoidance. I think there's a lot of assumptiveness about it. You know, I think that in order to love fully, you have to let yourself attach. Mm. But then you have to learn how to detach. Um, I don't think there's a problem with attach. I think it, it happens. It's, it, it's how we connect. But you have to be willing to let go when it's time. And we don't, we haven't learned how to do that very well. It's like, how do you be fully present? The only way to live life when you don't know how, particularly with difficult things, is to avoid. What alternative do you have? It's a pretty smart strategy. Keeps you reasonably sane. Keeps you alive. Um, until we learn how to help ourselves know how to live those things better, and grow in capacity then, we're going to do the best we can. So, you know, I remember, um, I'm not going to remember his name. 
Arjuna Arda. I remembered his name. <laughs> um, he wrote um, a really, really, really worthwhile book. It's thick, but oh my God, it's called The Translucent Revolution. And um, after reading the book, I listened to him lecture, and one of the things he said, and I admired it tremendously because, it, it, you know, it's a tough thing for a, a male spiritual teacher to admit. But what he said is that the vast majority of spiritual teachings, traditions, and paths have been dominated by the thinking and understanding and viewpoint of men. And many of the viewpoints about emotion as superfluous um, to spiritual progress is really the response of men who wanted to believe that emo human emotion was beneath them. Mm. It's a, 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 he said it's a, a dysfunctional masculine point of view. He said most male spiritual teachers are spiritual invalids or emotional invalids. And what they teach about emotion, including the concepts, worthwhile and important concepts of attachment and detachment and presence and enlightenment, are colored and sadly contaminated by a dysfunctional point of view about emotion and the, the feminine side of the spiritual path. And, you know, that really, really rang true, but I didn't understand it as deeply as I understand it now because I had to turn towards and, and find a way to partner with grief. And it's, in many ways, it's freed me. But if I had taken as gospel the ma more masculine points of view about emotion being superfluous, you know, about something we shouldn't feel. That's where this whole bliss notion comes from. And it's not real. It's not true. It's only mm. part of the story. I think attachment is part of the equation. And we have. It, how do you learn to detach unless you've been attached? And how do you learn courage and faith and trust and unconditional love unless you face the risk of attaching again when you've known the pain of needing to detach or being required to because something just dies. Um, I, think, I think one of the things we have to do is ask really pertinent leadership-oriented questions about constructs of personal evolution and spiritual thought because that's the only way to be a real leader, not to take as gospel what you've been taught or told, but to experience the truth of it for yourself by asking questions and daring to live the answer. And I think that's the only way we can know whether what's been taught is real and reliable. And the only way to find reliable is to find it in your own life. Make sense? Yeah. In a real way, in a lived way, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I, I, the time of entrusting the truth to others is passing. There's a lot of flailing around right now, especially in, you know, the United States and other parts of the world. But the, the, the flip side is there's enormous swaths of the population who are becoming more and more sovereign. 
And I think that's the only place to lead from. And if um, an emotion, if we turn away from a difficult emotion or a difficult period because we don't know how to navigate it, we cannot be sovereign and we cannot lead. We cannot create and we cannot know our purpose fully in order to fulfill it and contribute it. We just can't. Um, this is where sovereignty comes from. We just haven't been prepared for it. And we're finding out that we're the preparers as well as the livers and leaders. That makes sense? Yeah. Yeah. I just go back to, you know, when you and I met six years ago and, mm-hmm. and the phrase about trusting life is coming to me. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Right. right. Yeah. And that means everything. The it, things that, yep. But trusting life doesn't mean being passive. You know, I, I have, I have a client I recently had to say, you know, I, I think it's time we consider our work complete because this individual continues to this day saying, well, you know, and she is American and she believes that allowing Trump his way is the most spiritual way to respond. And I'm like, that to meet it with any kind of opinion or preference is resistance and takes her out of the right vibration. And, you know, with, with all due respect, all the advances we've made as human beings um, and as, yeah, as human beings has come as a result of an awakening of spirit and mind to the truth that something wasn't okay and the standing for what is and the making way for it and the willingness to risk yourself and lead the way and to be a voice for it and an opening to it. And you can't be passive. That There's a big difference between trusting life and calling a passive capitulation, trusting life, because it's not. And as real leaders, um, we know that. Deep down, we know that. Again, again, that's the avoidance thing. So we have to learn how not to avoid. Even when things are difficult. Yeah. Very yes. difficult. Yeah. And we're going to, there's going to be times when, you know, the pain is so great, you're going to need to turn away. I, I watched myself on a, on a number of occasions just, you know, care for my pain and not ask for more than from myself than that. Because sometimes that's what you need to be able to be ready two, three, four days, weeks, months later to be ready when a moment comes. Um, to be that, because, you know, to, to come from healthfulness and compassionate ground. But you have to be compassionate towards yourself. Yeah, you do. You do. I had this really interesting conversation with somebody. You know, one of the other things that's happened for me is my, my voice is stronger than it's ever been. You know, even the subtlest violations of boundary. Ooh. 
I have more access, not just to desire these days, but to, mm, no, that's not okay. Um, it was really interesting. This, uh, um, a, a very, a lovely, lovely, lovely woman I have deep respect for in many, many ways was talking about, um, how medication of any kind is inappropriate, um, at all times, period, with no exceptions. So self-medicating when you're in great, great pain is just unacceptable. It's, it's addiction, period. There's no, no gray area. It's black or white. That's all there is. And, um, she had a couple of weeks before had root canal surgery mm-hmm. and she had asked that she, um, so not only was she put under and had a great deal of freezing in her mouth after the surgery was complete, she asked for higher degrees of medication because there was a great deal of pain. And I looked at her and I said, then why did you not choose to have root canal surgery without anesthesia and pain medication after it was over? And she stopped in her tracks and said, well, well, that's different. And I said, why is that different? Pain is pain. Pain, and sometimes the pain you're experiencing is a healing pain that doesn't require process or analysis. It's just the pain of healing. But you are giving it a blanket assessment, and anyone who feels the need to help themselves live through that kind of painful period with a need for help, deficient. How does, how do you do that? That's like this whole thing about attachment. Well, wait a minute. What if detachment is appropriate and natural and part of the cyclical process? And we just haven't learned how to be with it mm. or shift out of it in a, in a more healthy way. What if that, the lessons that have been taught and handed down have been biased against painful emotion? And that that was an attempt, a strategic attempt, couched in spiritual terms to help us, help us not have to go through that. What if it was actually teaching how not to be connected because it's painful and messy and human? What if that was an inaccurate understanding? And what if that's been messing us up? Hmm. Okay then perhaps we have some new things to learn about pain. Alrighty then. So sometimes medication's okay. I'm going to have to think about that. Yeah. <laughs> well, as a leader, that might be a good thing to do. Yeah. Because <laughs> who's leading who here? Yeah. How do you know what you know? Where did that come from? Have you checked? Did you know you need to? Those are the kinds of things I'm now really interested in. I hear so many people regurgitate what they have ingested and never thought to question or examine or, you know, kind of, huh. And today, we can't take anything for granted. This this post-truth era, that means we got to do this with everything. Yep. That's not a bad thing. It's a trippy thing because we don't know what to trust. Guess what? That's called dark night of the soul. 
It's, it's a time when the things that are, that have not for some time been trustworthy are as called into question as the things that still are so that we can find out which ones they are for ourselves. That's why dark night of the soul feels so freaking hard. Because all of a sudden we have, we don't know what to have faith in, including mm-hmm. ourselves. That's the only way. So in, in a way, losing my husband was the biggest, deepest, darkest dark night of the soul I've ever been through. And pain is not what we thought it is. It still sucks, but it's not what we think it is. Hmm. I'm so glad we've had a chance to talk to you. <laughs> Uh, and I'm really, uh, you know, I'm grateful that we've known ourselves through most of this, big chunk of this, you know, orbiting each other. Um, I really appreciate it, and I appreciate your love and support and um, your friendship. Thank you. Yes, me too. Me too. Deeply, gratefully, mm-hmm. just from the heart. I hear you, girl. Absolutely. Me too. Yeah. 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 Think we're done. I think so too. Yeah. Till next time. Yeah. Till next time. Thank you. Okay. Thank you for Thank being you. the leader that you are having conversations like this. We need more of it. So I really appreciate it. I really appreciate you being willing and being open to talk about this. Yeah. 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 It's it's, it's not light and it's not rainbows and sunshine, but it's necessary and it leads to rainbows in future. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm Lori Ferentz, and you've been listening to Leaders Call to Adventure, the show for those that take the road less traveled. For show notes, go to www.leaderscalltoadventure.com forward slash seven. You can follow Leaders Call to Adventure on Twitter and Facebook. If you haven't yet, Go to Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app to subscribe, rate, or review this podcast. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening in, and until next time.